Hi everyone, welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Julianne Vejols, anthropologist, assistant professor of Latin American studies at the University of Amsterdam Center for Latin American Research and Documentation, CEDLA, and one of the speakers at the Why the World Needs Anthropology, Mobilizing the Planet edition, happening between 10 and 12th of September 2021. We are happy to have Julianne with us speaking to her background in current work at the intersection of scholarship and political activism, how to look at and engage with patterns of political mobilization with attention to the local, how to navigate being an expert and an activist, how to engage with the discomfort of being labeled an expert on Nicaragua. She speaks to how she deals with effect and neutrality in her work, but also to the process of producing knowledge through intimate encounters with other people's policies. Lastly, as a speaker of the Why the World is Anthropology, Mobilizing the Planet edition, she shares how she will be contributing to the theme, as well as her advice and thoughts to those considering to attend. Listen to the episode to hear more about it. We hope you enjoy it. Hello, friends. It's that time of the year again, where we are gearing up to uh, cover why the world needs anthropologists. And this year, it's a wonderful topic, mobilizing the planet. Um, and I'm joined here today by Julianne Vejos, an anthropologist and one of the speakers. Hi, Julianne. Hi, so nice to be here. Yeah, nice to nice to uh, nice to be here with you too. So um, now, in our normal fashion of covering the speakers of this conference, I want to invite you to to tell me and our listeners a little bit about yourself. Like, who are you? What do you do? And um, what's your what's your motivation for um, for joining the conference this year? Well, I'm a I'm an anthropologist by training, um, which means that I've actually been uh, straying a little bit from the discipline over the past years. I've been working a lot um, at the Center for Latin American Studies, so in a very interdisciplinary field where I also find myself with criminologists and political scientists, sociologists, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, personally, I've been working a lot with prisoners uh, and on policing and imprisonment um, in Nicaragua where I also did my doctoral research. Um, and uh, as of recently, I am working also on a project called Protestas, um, which is um, a multi-interregional project uh, between Asia and Latin America um, on the politics and aesthetics of digital authoritarianism and protest. Um, and this kind of combines both my interests in authoritarianism or creeping authoritarianism um, and protest movements and imprisonment um, since the eruption of protests in Nicaragua in, 20, in 2018. Mm -hmm. um, during that, a lot of my friends, uh, people that I knew, uh, including family, were involved in, in the protests. And... Um, yeah, that was, let's say, a watershed moment for me, both in terms of thinking about policing and imprisonment. It was also the moment that I was at the verge of finishing my doctoral thesis. Um, 
and starting to think about new yeah new things and new ways to understand these realities and also forging let's say um relationships uh with activists um with refugees um beginning also to work uh, partially as an expert witness um mm -hmm. for asylum cases uh mobilizing together with people from the diaspora here and with refugees um and also as a part of that which is kind of um a, let's say a separate identity or i don't know even to call it an identity um the work that we used to do in prisons my husband and i my husband who is a nicaraguan theater director was always revolving around theater mm -hmm. um so the theater part of course also came with um to the protests and to uh, across the ocean to refugeehood um and those kinds of changes also in our personal lives yeah in 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 which way it 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 uh, they intersect give me an example well for instance um the uh, the group uh, that my that my husband began participating in to, uh, with the protests uh were simultaneously creating a play against the dictatorship um at a certain point they came to Europe uh and presented that play um he also uh, after that started um helping to organize public interventions in uh, cities here in the Netherlands um so that's let's say my research was never focused on theater as such it was mm. much more focused on the experiences of imprisonment um and these kind of things the experiences of violence um and it continues to be so but let's say the theater has always been part of um yeah my life uh, <laughs> as an activist uh as an academic let's say uh, it, on the um Venn diagram overlap of those two uh parts of my life and my personal interests yeah that is so interesting i have um, a very good friend in romania who is um also a theater director and she does this interesting um theater as a way to break stigma around um lgbtq um, um topics and also mental health so they and that it's i it was the first time that i i kind of like looked differently as as this kind of ways of of um engaging with narratives that are usually things that you you like the general public has a difficult time engaging with you know in a in a yeah. space of um yeah empathy Exactly it allows for a consideration of the sensory of embodiment of yeah. performance gender performance also part of my work has uh, been around masculinities for instance mm. inside prison um and the reworking of ideas around masculinity through theater and also the the form of theater that we used to make in inside prisons was very much a physical form of theater so um without words more looking toward the physical registers also because of the issue of secrecy so that's simultaneously related let's say to authoritarianism and imprisonment um the notion that you can't really speak out about what's yeah. actually going on but somehow you can um on a different level of um interaction you can make that known you can yeah you can express it yeah it's 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 a form of how do you call, subverting um the 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 existing discourses right is a is a way of kind of um yeah creating space hosting exactly. whole, yeah wow exactly. it's wonderful i um i have a hard time when i normally record these offices because i just have want to go so so deep into the work uh, at times <laughs> when i find it so interesting like in this case but 
I will drain myself in. Tell me um, why the world needs anthropology this year. It's mobilizing the mobilizing the planet. What drew you drew you to the conference, or and and how are you going to speak to the theme through the work that you do? Well. Um... First of all, when, when Mina approached me to uh, speak at the conference, um, that was following a presentation that I gave at a different conference um, and uh, in, in which we talked about, you know, practices of uh, digital authoritarianism and, and the memorizing of protests, uh, the memorialization mm -hmm. and the practices around also remembrance um, uh, around the protests. And I was like, well, you know, I've been so involved on the side of my academic work in mobilizing people around what's going on in Nicaragua, um, in speaking on the radio, um, mm -hmm. doing, as I said, these uh, expert testimonies for uh, asylum applications, um, in working with political prisoners, families, and former political prisoners, those who are released, who are some of which also had to flee the country. Um, and I was really like, there's this schism always between, you know, big media discourse and the lived lives of people um, and how quickly um, a media moment gets lost. Um, so ah, people are arrested. There's a little blurb in the Dutch news and that's it. And two days later, it's about a different country. Um, so it's very difficult for um, situations that occur in other parts of the world to um, gain traction in, um, yeah, let's say in, in European news outlets or, or mm -hmm. however we want to put it. So there are other ways in which we should then, or we can look toward how then to mobilize um, affect, uh, yeah, people, human resources, most of all, <laughs> um, toward, um, yeah, finding ways out. Um, of, of that situation. Um, the situation as it is now is it's impossible to resolve and much less from abroad. That's something that has to be from done from within, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that there is a momentum, especially when thinking about authoritarianism, um, that, you know, both on the right and on the left, we can see examples across the world. And there is a lack of... Um, uh, perhaps let's say a lack of a unified way of, of looking at that and of looking at that across regions. And it can be just my <laughs> blindness of, you know, being in so much involved with Latin American studies that I don't know what's going on in other parts of the world, uh, but that I started noticing as going uh, with protestas, looking more to Asia um, mm -hmm. and talking also with uh, scholars from the Middle East, um, and just seeing all the ways in which over the past five years, these massive demonstrations and the massive repression that followed on them mm. has been so similar across, across contexts and how also these regimes copycat one another in terms of exchanging information. Um, and if the regimes can do that, then the protest movements can or maybe should even be doing that as well, right? Um, so it's also an interest, let's say, for me in terms of um, looking at these patterns of mobilization um, and how, as anthropologists, we can we can look at that uh, with such attention to the local and to the very local registers of why people mobilize, how people remember, um, 
yeah, what kind of affect and what kind of like, as I was saying about the, the embodied aspects of this as well, and the historical things that are brought into that. Uh, but at the same time, you know, taking that distance and that critical distance and looking at, okay, what are the bigger, um, more geopolitical things going on here? Um, and how can we connect uh, across contexts? So that's, yeah. Maybe. That will be, uh, you're going to dive into this um, this topic in your talk in the conference? This yes, is... yes. Okay. I'm going to give, you know, some concrete examples, uh, for instance, about, you know, around particular localities of protests and how uh, those localities become uh, remembered in cyberspace. Um, so they become, you know, certain, let's say, currencies of, of protest symbols. Um so the symbolic side of it, but I'm also going to be looking more at the lived experience side of it at the hand of uh, some stories of uh, protesters who had to flee and at the uh, hand of stories of family members of political prisoners who continue to be uh, in jail. Yeah. And, and you mentioned earlier, but very briefly, about your own kind of involvement uh, with this protest in other, other positionalities than just an anthropologist. Yeah. Uh, through your lens of your own family. Um, so I, I'm, I'm kind of like curious, how do you navigate um, these different positionalities for yourself, especially in this kind of like heated world of, um, of, of activism? Yes, <laughs> that's a very good question. It's actually something that I'm also going to go into in the talk a little bit. Um, because this multiplicity of roles, it's quite difficult to navigate, of course, um, especially thinking about the so thinking about just being an expert between brackets right and this very uncomfortable label of being labeled an expert and then suddenly you're one of the only experts on Nicaragua in the Netherlands but suddenly you also notice that there's a huge lack of information in the migration services about things mm. going on in Latin America and you start providing information human rights reports I also started collaborating on human rights reports around political imprisonment um, and then you kind of have to, or yeah, get accustomed to that label of, of being the country expert kind of um, mm. label. Um, and at the same time, so that gives you certain liberties in the sense of um, really, you know, translating your knowledge into a, a real life impact for people, um, for people requesting asylum. On the other hand, it also means that you're supposed to be you know, neutral. Um, you're supposed to have an eye on both sides. Mm -hmm. um, you're supposed to, you know, know the intricacies of uh, things that are going on um, and not be caught up in, uh, you know, not be overly political, not be caught up in the in the politics of it all, yeah. which is a really weird because your knowledge is, of course, as we know, as anthropologists, your knowledge is produced through these encounters, these intimate encounters with other people's politics, <laughs> their political yeah. beliefs. Yeah. Um, so for me, um, uh, yeah, kind of that was that's one of the more in uncomfortable um, positions, which is, you know, having to maintain a, a supposed neutra neutrality toward um, government institutions. Um, so it's, it's this constant negotiation, of course, and it's also a negotiation with the with the activists in the protest uh, movement in the diaspora movement and the refugees. Who, who know of this kind of duplicity or multiplicity of roles that I have. And at yeah. the same time, the role that I have as, as a teacher, the space that I have as a teacher at the Center for Latin America Studies to also, yeah, uh, or speak about things that are going on, uh, connect them to other um, 
realities to, um, yeah, sort of, I wouldn't say mobilize students, but somehow, you know, provoke uh, thoughts uh, among students about these uh, dilemmas, um, about these situations, um, and organize more kind of academic events around uh, the things that are going on. So it, it does, yeah, you do definitely get this huge <laughs> multiplicity of roles uh, as soon as you venture out of the academic ivory tower, let's say. Yeah, I um, maybe maybe a somehow weird question, but bear with me. And um, I I'm curious, like, how do you look at your own ideology on systems of power, and, and what a good system of power distribution should look like in society? Like, like, can you sit in that space from a space of neutrality as well, or you think, no, I think it's it's important to have your own ideology of of how a a, a system of power should be constructed because. You know, when you're an activist, you are you are you are militating for something, right? Like you you against something, but also for something else. So it's very very poorly phrased question. Sorry for that. <laughs> but in in my head, like when this 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 is what for me would be very difficult uh, and would almost chew at the that neutrality. But it could also be that the two can sit very well together because neutrality can also be informed by personal ideology, and they can nah. So. Sorry, yeah. it's too long in my question, but I hope it's clear. Yeah, no, for me, it's very recognizable within, let's say, the human rights discourse, which is definitely, you know, it's it's uh, displayed to be neutral uh, because it's very much based, you know, on the, on, on the law, on the mm -hmm. human rights stature, uh, on the UN conventions and all of these things. But it's, of course, also informed by ideology. It's also informed by people's personal beliefs. Yeah. Um, but then somehow you can, between brackets, get away with it more because the, there is this supposed neutrality for human rights advocates or, or defenders. Um, so I noticed that there's, um, you know, there's some wiggle room there. Um, and I would also say that for me personally, in, in the issue with the um, working with my migration or the asylum uh, system, which I'm, of course, on a personal level, really do not, you know, like the Dutch asylum system <laughs> at all um, and, you know, disagree with how uh, politics around it are being uh, done and all of these mm -hmm. things. Uh, but I also thought if I, if I am too much against the system as such, then I'm precluding myself from being able to um, have an impact on the system itself for the people that are being put through it. Um, so if I would kind of separate myself from it too much and say like, well, I'm going to stay on the outside of it, then um, then my impact would be, let's say, less potentially. So that that's there is kind of like a sacrifice that you then that I felt that was a sacrifice that was valid to make to um, make sure that. Uh, that the information that I give and the expert uh, declarations that I give are perceived to be made from a position of knowledge, let's say, and also to kind of, let's say, use that academic privilege <laughs> to make impact. Um, so I've kind of become more comfortable with how to use that academic privilege mm -hmm. and how to speak to power, let's say, uh, from that position uh, through my engagement with 
agents within that system uh, of power and also seeing them as human human beings um, and seeing kind of the system as made up of human beings rather than as this kind of, um, yeah. Yeah, I, um, I, I find that personally very difficult. That's why I'm asking you. Um, I, I always felt like, you know, one of the hardest things that I have in, in, in speaking to power is how people get um, maybe as a form of kind of creating a healthy distance, they desensitize themselves of, uh, from the effects of the of the mechanics of power, yeah. and yeah. then it gets to in some weird form for them institutionalized and yeah. depersonal. So, and I tend to go on the other extreme and and get very personal, yeah, uh, and 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 really touch the emotion and touch uh, touch the essence of why something is wrong, and and then. Yeah. You know, I find it hard to kind of navigate that space without, like, how can you be objective and neutral um, when, to a certain extent, being objective and neutral can reinforce this this process of depersonalization, the bureaucratization. You know what I mean? Yeah. Of dis distancing yeah. somehow from the yeah. um yeah from the effects of your decisions. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> No, I definitely agree. And that, so in that sense, I'm glad that I'm not um, a migration attorney or uh, somebody on the other end of the migration uh, system making the decisions, you know, on the cases and being able to levy, let's say, my knowledge um, again, uh, and kind of, I would say... Uh, becoming aware of different scripts to use. Mm. Uh, so how I can script my knowledge in such a way that somebody who's making a decision on an asylum case can say, ah, these are things I didn't know yet, and these are things that merit this person not to be deported. Um, because at the, the moment that I'm uh, invited by a migration lawyer, uh, so one of the asylum, the asylees, um, uh, lawyers to participate in uh, a case by doing a declaration, mm. um, that's in the process when they've already gotten a no. Yeah. So then then I, you know, try to find a way in which I can levy, you know, what I know about the situation and all the documents that I have read yeah. <laughs> and all yeah. of this stuff and use their language to wiggle in the system. Yeah, yeah. that's really yeah. cool. Um yeah, I I, 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 have, I have a lot of respect for people like you that 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 manage to do that job, in particularly at such high human stakes. You know, let's go to the last part and and just kind of like reflect a bit on um, this conference, but but maybe conferences in general. Like I I know this conference is important. It's 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 um. But I'm 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 constantly curious why why go to conferences and why come to this one and 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 what's the value of for a participant of being there that you think um it is well for me as a student mm -hmm. um i loved conferences also as a phd student i loved conferences <laughs> um and on the one hand because you get to put a face and a body to the things that you're reading so you might get to see people that you've read before and then suddenly there's a face and a body that goes with that and mm -hmm. other things and other you know possibilities for other kinds of exchanges with these people. Um, so let's say the networking side of it, but also the intellectual, very you know, like intellectually provoking part of it. And on the other hand, because you get to be part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. So you're you're not just 
And that's also what I would, you know, really um, always say to students is be part of the conversation. Don't just sit there in the audience. It's it's not a mm-hmm. lecture where you're going to get a test about. <laughs> yeah. Know? Scholars love it if you walk up to them and ask them questions after a talk. They love it if you say that you read their work. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, there's a human being that actually read stuff <laughs> that I wrote that cost me perhaps, you know, sw- sweat and tears. Um, and so really um, seeing the conference as a possibility for this human exchange mm-hmm. and especially conferences like the Applied Anthropology conferences that also permit these other types of formats like the workshop format. Um, that really gives you the possibility to engage also in more experimental uh, ways of, of thinking, of uh, expressing your own um, ideas and thinking mm-hmm. about your own practices. Um, and talking with other people about your practices and uh, you know also it doesn't matter how uh, how long you've been a scholar how short you've been a scholar putting your ideas out there so that they can be discussed and so that a conversation can be had about them for me is always a very fruitful moment for self-reflection but also for this kind of collective um work that is uh academia that is you know also anthropology is a collective endeavor. Um, and we tend to kind of uh, put, you know, individual anthropologists on these pedestals as being these uh, fantastic people and thinkers <laughs> who somehow come up with these ideas and theories about people and the people they've worked with. But everything about anthropology is collective. Um, the thought process, the writing process, the research process, obviously, you know, you're doing ethnography with other people, <laughs> um, not on other people, with other people. Uh, so, I, yeah, I think that the conference is just a place, if it's a conference that's organized in such a way, right? And if it's mm-hmm. not, then you can kind of try to switch the script yourself to have those conversations with others and to build on, um, yeah, the, the different forms of knowledge that are produced within that's, anthropology. That's wonderful. That's that's a great motivation to 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 come, but also to contribute. An invitation to contribute, right? Yes. Um, no. So, um, dear listeners, um, I hope you will take us up on this invitation and join us at the Why the World Needs Anthropology conference, and listen Julianne uh, speak more about her wonderful projects at this uh, interesting intersection of uh, activism and uh, scholarship. Um, Julian, it was a pleasure meeting you and I'm, I myself, I'm really looking forward to your talk. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.